feel like I always have the weird stuff happening on deals. One of our um, sellers, it was, you know, 11th hour before signing the purchase agreement, decides to essentially request a million dollars more of proceeds um, on the assumption that he was going to remove an open role that was all agreed to and part of a business plan in order to grow the business. Let's just remove that and pay me a million dollars more. So you can imagine it's a bad look, you know, best case scenario. You think, okay, maybe it's a senior moment. We just forgot about the business plan. Never mind, you know, but what ended up happening is we're just questioning doing the deal in general. Is this person really aligned to grow? Just a lot of bigger concerns started to float up. Alan Darby, Jacqueline Martinez. This is the buyer's boardroom. Learn the most about who you are today and where you want to be after. Welcome back, friends and family, to episode seven of the buyer's boardroom. I'm your host, Rick Music, and with me as always, Alan Darby and Jacqueline Martinez. Traditionally, we talk about all the great things you can expect during a partnership conversation, but we'll be joined with our guest today, Michael Maloney of the Carson Group. And together, the three of these perfect individuals are going to help us unpack all of the things that go bump in the night as they're around their cauldron, making this so much easier for us. We don't know how it is, what they do, what they do, but we know that it's witchcraft. So welcome again to everybody to the Buyer's Boardroom. Alan, Jacqueline, how are you? How's the week been? Anything crazy? I feel like I always have the weird stuff happening on deals. <laughs> when are you guys going to have one? But yeah, the other day with one, um, one of our um, sellers, it was, you know, 11th hour before signing the purchase agreement, decides to essentially request a million dollars more of proceeds um, on the assumption that he was going to remove an open role that was all agreed to and part of a business plan in order to grow the business. Let's just remove that and pay me a million dollars more. So you can imagine it's a bad look, you know, best case scenario. You think, okay, maybe it's a senior moment. We just forgot about the business plan. Never mind, you know, but what ended up happening is we're just questioning doing the deal in general is this person really aligned to grow? Just a lot of bigger concerns started to float up. Um, That's the biggest one. And, you know, that is an odd thing to see so late in the process. Again, the emphasis being that, you know, once you sign the LOI, most of the deal terms are effectively agreed to. Could be small tweaks here and there, but largely you're going into the post-LOI cadence, which is today's topic. Um, pretty well understanding of the deal terms and the essential things that go into the PL in particular, right? And so here you have a gentleman that, uh, and this was a particularly long uh, dating phase, by the way. So it wasn't like this was a short um, process at all. Um, you know, their buyers are typically very interested. We've done podcasts on this before, how growth is like a significant part of why they're doing uh, the partnership with you or the perception of growth going forward. And in this individual was articulating a strong desire to grow, yet right at the 11th hour, they wanted to remove an allocation um, that was going to be supportive of that growth. So it really, not only is it bad form just from a timing perspective, but you have to be very sensitive to maneuvers that you make at that final hour and how it casts like a light on you, uh, good or bad, in this case, bad. 
but it truly uh, put the deal at risk. And unfortunately, this person never really will know like how much they put it at risk, but it was a really bad look. And fortunately, we were able to salvage it and uh, got back on track. But that was certainly a, a very eventful day of trying to rein that one back in, mostly for the Velvet Amber Jacqueline, uh, not so much me. We handled it. You didn't even know. That's right. It was just perfect. So this is why we call it a freak out moment, right? I mean, this is bananas. For both well, was a, that's kind of a freak out moment, but it's, it was really uh, freak out moments. I think of are more just like emotional uh, breakdowns of sorts, not a, like a true breakdown, but just like where the, it gets so real, you know, you're getting to the finish line and you just freak out. You have some kind of emotional reaction. This was more of like a calculated and that's probably why it was perceived worse. You know, they could handle emotional oh, right. towards this end of this game, but like into the into that phase. But here it was more like, okay, you we're now questioning whether or not you're actually the person you think you are, because this was all agreed to. We're all on the same boat, so to speak, with this specific item. And now you're wanting to come back and change it the last hour. And that makes us question your motives in the deal. Fair, that's, fair. that's why. Yeah. Yeah, but that's it's a great segue to today's topic, Rick. Once you well, the freak out moment. Like I will see your freak out moment, and I will raise you all of the things that you, Jacqueline, and Michael Bellomini do in these very normal occurrences. We call them freak out moments. Everybody has them, but it's not that we haven't done everything in our power to let them know that this is what's going to happen to get yourself through it. But they still happen, right? Still happen. I just, you have to find the magic bullet that solves the freak out moment dilemma. Well, I I have a story that comes to mind, and I and it's not to say that going through the evaluation process is going to be speak the anecdote that I'm going to give you, but so I had a kidney stone, and that's a terrible open to the story. But I had a kidney stone, and uh, my my youngest son was born. He'd been he'd been on the earth for a little less than a day, and I came home. And I was like, God, I have a pain in my back. My wife, now we already had a one-year-old. And I said, I've got to go into, I got to go to the doctor. So I went into the doctor and I'm like, I got a pain in my back. And they're like, yeah, you're going to stay here overnight. We got to get you home because your wife is at a C-section, everything else. We get, we're going to, we're going to go in and get it. So massive pain. They go in and get it. <clears throat> the next day they let me, you know, they, you know, they keep me for another day and I'm having these massive pains in my back. Now, they went in and got the kidney stone. I didn't have it anymore, but I had these massive pains in my back, the exact ones that I actually went in to the hospital for. And I'm, you know, pretty well drugged up. And I think I'm saying things that I probably shouldn't have. Like, I've been like, what do you know? You're the help. And I'm like, you know, yelling at people because I have this pain in my back. And they're like, no, it's phantom pain. It's very normal. It's very normal. Now, this wasn't my doctor. This was someone else that I'd never seen before. And I'm yelling. Um, long and the short is I end up going and seeing my doctor. To, as a follow-up, and, and I'm like, you know, if you'd only told me from the beginning, hey, we're going to go and we're going to get this, and these next couple of days are going to suck for you, you're going to feel the pain, it's going to be normal, it's going to be all part of this. I'd still been in pain, but up here I'd have been like, you know, at least I know. Mentally prepared. Yeah, it's going to be happening. We set the expectation. So it's not to say that I want to kick this thing off like it's going to be passing a kidney stone if you transact, but I think being armed with these freakout moments and knowing that they're normal, I guess, is maybe the where I'm going with this. Guy. No, you're you're right, and and that's you know we a lot of what we try to do at Alaris 
is tell the seller what's going to happen before it happens. And the entire purpose is for just general awareness, but it's specifically so that there are no surprises or as few as possible, right? And so we thought this would be a good topic today. Uh, Jacqueline is going to lead it for us um, because this is her specific area of expertise is, you know, what happens once the letter of intent is signed and the post LOI cadence. And we've taped videos on this, but we, we spent a lot of time trying to tell people like what's coming because if you're not prepared for this, and this could be for the buyer or the seller, you know, we see buyers who are not prepared well either for the post LOI work, but um, it makes the journey just so much more painful than if you would have been told, you know, to your phantom pain analogy, I think it's a great analogy. If you would have just been told, you would have still had the pain, but you would have been able to tolerate it a lot more. It makes it worse when you're not expecting it. And so what we thought would be a good idea is just to talk about, hey, once you're at the, the final stretch with the uh, buyer and the seller, what happens? And we define this phase specifically when the letter of intent uh, which is typically non-binding, but when the letter of intent is signed, you know, it's the first big trigger event um, in this whole process. And we wanted to talk about what happens to it. So like, so that's, that's the purpose of today's call. Michael is going to be great because we think uh, Carson has one of the more dialed in post LOI processes. And so hearing the buyer talk about like from their perspective, what they, what they're going to do, I think will really be good for the the seller listeners today in particular. Well, Jacqueline, this is pretty exciting because, you know, for our viewers and our listeners, this is really post LOI. This is your neighborhood. This is your team. This is your squad where you live. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. I mean, let's, if you guys are ready, let's just get right to it. Shall we? Yeah. So what actually happens when the LOI is signed. So these keeping it with the freak out moment. Okay, we're at the LOI, the LOI, the letter of intent's being signed. We're not done. We still have a long way to go. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's kind of like the 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 fun part is 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 past us and now it's all the really the hard tasks, frankly, you know. But I mean, just building on what you guys were saying though, the it is a lot of work. There can be surprises no matter how much you try to get ahead of it, but our goal in the end of it is that, you know, on both sides, everyone's feeling really accomplished and proud and feel good about the contracts that are signed. And, and, and that's the, that's what we're going for. And that's where we usually end up, but it's just how we get there. Um, and I would say our, like our best practice around getting to that point in a smooth way is really to start the three paths that need to happen. So we have the transition prep, we have all the legal work, the purchase agreement, employment agreements, all of that, and also due diligence. And really, once that LOI is signed in that next week, that those three work streams are starting and, and in earnest, that there's regular meetings set. And um, not all buyers do it this way, but we find that the ones that get through the process from LOI signing to purchase agreement signing and closing eventually, that this this is the best practice. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And um, we sit in a very unique spot having the ability to work with so many buyers around the country and see how they each treat this post LOI workflow. 
And I totally agree. I think it's a best practice that you launch all three at once. Um, from the seller's perspective, you know, we, we want to take this opportunity to give you our opinion, um, given that most buyers, the owners, uh, they're awesome advisors and great at running a business, but they may not be the best at detail. And so you want to um, prepare your team for this workflow and enlist their support because you have a business to run, specifically working with your clients. Um, your team is usually better suited to knock down some of these. Um, we're going to talk about every, each, each three of the workflows here, but you know, make sure you're going into it, preparing your team mentally so that they understand that, Hey, we understand this is going to be a tough, uh, several weeks, uh, but we're going to lock arms and we'll get through it, uh, together, but, you know, make sure that as you're hearing this and getting educated yourself, you're transferring that reality to the team as well, you know, and so that they're not shocked by all of this. Um, uh, and by the way, we've got a whole nother series on when is the right time to let your team in on this. We won't dive into that today earlier, I think is better, but this is definitely a point where if you haven't let the cat out of the bag yet, that you're partnering with someone, you definitely want to do it at this point, uh, you know, right around the LOI time period. So they're not shocked. Right. Calm any worries that their their job is at risk or anything like that. You need them just working on the transition, not not worried about any of that because they shouldn't be. Um. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so jump right in. So maybe we'll take diligence first. Yeah, diligence yeah. first. My yeah. favorite due diligence. I'm very excited for this episode, Jacqueline. I'm actually really, really jacked that you're running this. Yeah. Uh, Al, take the day off, please. <laughs> I usually do when it comes to diligence. <laughs> um okay so diligence i mean prior to signing an loi typically there's a lot of things that are already being collected there's a lot of information already being being shared but after there's a fair amount of things though that are really saved until you reach that milestone to get into um and 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 it it can come in the form of a very long diligence list. Um, and that's also your opportunity too, as a seller to ask for anything from the buyer that you would like to review in connection with, you know, maybe you're receiving their equity or things like that. So it, it doesn't have to be one way um, at all. And, you know, we encourage in the, in the transactions that we work on that sellers are also asking for things of the buyer um, to get ahead of, you know, any um, hesitations that may come up later. Um, so information being shared both ways, I would say the top thing that can slow things down, especially for buyers that are backed by private equity is what's called a quality of earnings reporting that will be done. And it's very in-depth accounting work. You're giving backups like an audit. of your, like an, yeah, it's like an audit. You're giving backups of your QuickBooks. They're going through transaction by transaction, understanding everything. It's super in-depth, um, usually always ends up at the, you know, same place as where the original math ended up, but they have to go through their process for in order to fund essentially. So it's it's a big thing. Um, and then also prioritizing in that. So after you get through financial, then any compliance or legal things, you know, in a, in a perfect world, any skeletons in the closet, those would have been disclosed before the LOI, get that on the table. But if not, now's the time. That's a must. I do want to you know, th this is something that we often get asked at this point, given the amount of data that we've collected already, you know, from the very point where we were engaged to bring the seller through the process, 
we start our own um, a form of due diligence, just asking questions about their business, their P&L, their staff, their operations, client experience, all of this sort of stuff. And so some firms are a little bit surprised that due diligence hasn't even started yet once we get to the LOI. But the diligence they're talking about here is a slightly different than the data we collect during the front end of the phase. It's okay. more kind of like confirmatory. Like it's like they've been given data largely through us that we've collected from the seller, but now they have to go in and actually confirm it. And that's like the quality of earnings part where they're hiring an external firm, actually an auditing firm typically, to come in and verify all your sources of revenue um, and really verifying the P&L. But you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff that we're collecting here is getting more granular in nature, right, Jacqueline? So like Absolutely. we've talked about, for example, the vendor contracts that you might have in your PL, which so far they've just seen a line item with an expense number next to XYZ vendor that you might have. Well, now they might want to go back and actually look at the contract that you've got to make sure there's nothing funky with it or they're going to be able to assume it. You know, like your rental lease agreements, things like that, they're actually going to be confirming. So that's the that's the difference of that data that we've collected previously versus what they're going through today. In the that field. is very helpful. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, I know we pull a lot of this data in on the front, and a lot of it. So then I'm hearing Jacqueline say, well, we, we really start the process here. And I'm so thank you for this, because I feel like I'm thinking. I think we already did this, didn't we? But you're wondering what I do all day. <laughs> well, yeah. so we, we we can agree what happened there. Um, but this is good clarification, Alan and Jacqueline, because I feel like there's a lot in the front, but then there's a different version of stuff that happens. More when it gets confirmatory, more granular. They often bring in third parties because that like as Jacqueline mentioned, it was a PE back firm. They're gonna require that their buyers get this sort of confirmation. They're not just relying on the seller directly or a third party like Alaris, you know, to provide them the data that they could be potentially liable for if something went bump in the night. And Jacqueline brought up a very good point. Uh, if you do have compliance issues, because like, for example, when we're bringing firms on the front end, of course, we're looking at their ADV. We're making sure we're asking questions about any compliance issues that they've dealt with in the past. Um, we've actually had this happen to us where Technically, the seller did not have any compliance issues in the past, but while we were bringing them through this process, they were under SEC investigation, okay? And they didn't disclose that until we got to the point of LOI, and that's when they thought, oh, we'll tell them about this um, current you know, investigation we're dealing with. And we're like, ah, guys, that's so indicative of a bad actor. You know, it's like, deal was off immediately. So if you do have uh, compliance issues in the past, certainly we've got to talk about those. But if there's anything pending, any pending lawsuits, any pending legal actions, that kind of stuff should be a, should have been disclosed way before now, but certainly get it out there today. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jam, really quick. When you yeah. go through the second process, do you do you find that there are, there, there are seller partners that are saying, hey, did I give this to you already? Or is it so obvious to them that it's a different, or does it like, hey, this seems redundant? Sure. Oh, yeah. It's definitely redundant. What we do is when those lists are sent out by the buyer, we'll go through it, our our files of what the seller's already given us and go through and 
you know, mark off those items and help narrow it down, make it feel less repetitive for them. Um, and really just narrow to what's, what's new and, and yeah, exactly. Cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk about the second part of the process, mm-hmm. which is probably my, I said due diligence was really this one. It's the legal aspect of the deal. So we're usually after the LOI, would it be correct, Jacqueline, to say that the first thing that the buyers deliver is a diligence, due diligence checklist, then that's what, because of that. That usually kicks off first, followed by this, where we're we're getting the first draft of the purchase agreements, correct? Or what we call the definitive docs. Um, Exactly. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So from a timing or sequencing perspective, rather, the usually takes a week or two um, would be typical timing from the time that the LOI is signed to when that first draft of the purchase agreement and related documents are ready. So focusing during that period when you're waiting for your purchase agreement on um, any due diligence requests and trying to get that done so that that's kind of behind you, the buyers then reviewing all of those items when you receive the purchase agreement, that would be, that would be the best, the best way, you know, so it's not as, as um, duplicative for, you know, every, you know, cause you're running your, your day job on top of all of this, of course. Sure. Sure. Well, I think the thing that we want to emphasize here is when the seller is seeking legal counsel is they want to hire someone that has M&A expertise and preferably M&A expertise in wealth management, because there's a lot of things unique to our industry that aren't really similar in other industries. M&A is M&A in some regards, but the nuances of our industry sometimes for lawyers that have not been familiar with it, they try to port their other experiences of what they know to be standard terms, et cetera, in those other industries into ours, and it just doesn't fit. So we encourage you to find someone who's done M&A in wealth management, and we are often the ones who are making recommendations to um, sellers based on their legal counsel. But if you have your own, that's perfectly fine. It just, we, we want to make sure that we're not having to educate them um, about how M&A works in wealth management because it costs you. Like on your deck. I got a question. Use the word term. Um, you know, legal, that's obviously important. Legal specific to wealth management. That makes a lot of sense. You don't want your uncle that does lawyer, you know, law and something else to, to be representing you here. But when you mention terms, what are the typical terms, you know, that, that would impact the price? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, going to the it's point of, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Going to the point of hiring someone familiar with the with the um, wealth management space and how these deals are structured. Normally, that LOI is going to outline, for example, like a common thing that throws people off that aren't familiar with transactions in our industry is that the advisors are going to the end clients usually before the closing happens. So you're going and announcing the deal to them, getting their consent, whatever that may mean for the specific deal. And then you're closing and that, you know, if you're not familiar with our industry, that can really, you know, be a foreign concept. But we have, of course, compliance and regulatory constraints that those consents really do need to to happen in order to move the clients over to the buyer's platform. It's a compliance, you know, SSE thing. Yeah. The way the point that I would make here is that normally, not always, but normally when you sign your letter of intent, 
It's very descriptive of the deal terms that are ultimately going to live in the definitive agreements. But most LOIs are non-binding. Some buyers do make them binding, but most are non-binding. So even after the post LOI, you're in this due diligence, legal and transition prep, um, you could still walk away from a deal. So good the buyer, you know, if something happens either in due diligence or for whatever reason, frankly. Um, so they find it unnerving that, hey, I'm going to be talking to my clients, repapering them um, before I get a check, right? Well, keep in mind before you're going to clients, so you have an LOI, which is non-binding, then that you're going to go through due diligence, legal and transition prep. At the end of that, we're going to be signing the purchase agreements or the definitive docs. At that point, both parties are bound together. You're bound to deliver the clients. They're bound to deliver the consideration. So even though um, you're not going to have a closing until the clients have made the transition, you are going to be signing purchase agreements before this. And so both both parties are bound, but sometimes they're they're thinking that, hey, I'm going to sign definitive agreements. And then that day we're getting a check before we go talk to clients. And that's usually not the case. The buyer is going to want to see the transition occur for a variety of reasons. And Jacqueline touched on a few of them. Uh, sometimes it's regulatory in nature. So and usually there's a threshold that they have to cross, right, Jacqueline? Right. Like Minimum of like 80% and then, and then, and then we're free to close. Um, but it's very very uncommon to have a consent process that results in less than 95% of the um, revenue, um, you know, signing the consent forms. It's very rare to be below that, but 80% um, is usually that minimum level that you're closing at. But then there may be other other deal terms related to future payments that are made, what needs to be true for something to, for a payment to be made. Um, oftentimes it revolves around retention of clients for a minimum period, 12, 18, 24 months, something along those lines, uh, where you're receiving a portion of the total purchase price at the close, the balance of it at some future milestone and, and very specific around what needs to be true. And a good LOI will articulate all of that. You'll understand when you're signing that non-binding agreement that it is um, what needs to be true at each of those stages. It's really as simple as, you know, here's the payment and that's the end of it. Um, so we, re we recommend being very clear about what those things will look like so that the purchase agreement isn't the first place that the seller is seeing those criteria for each payment to be made. So does the LOI get into like restrictive covenants that may show up in those purchase agreements or employee agreements? Oftentimes, yes, um, there will be some outline of how long, you know, from a time standpoint, maybe there's a geography around the radius, um, things like things like that. If will the employment be at will or be under an agreement? Um, and, you know, it's not meant to be a full purchase agreement. Of course, after that summary level LOI is signed, then you get all the full details, but at least to understand at that point, okay, there there will or there won't be an employment agreement for some period of time. Um, what generally do the restrictive covenants look like? And so that the, the person can understand holistically, okay, this is the price, this is the structure around it and feel comfortable with it and not be surprised by, you know, big components of that being missing out of the gates. Well, I would say, Jacqueline, wouldn't you like one of the more common fears that we get 
um, when or here when their the employment agreement is put in front of them, that they're going to be asked to sign. Certainly, the owners, if not even some of the employees of the team, are going to be given an employment agreement, and that employment agreement is often an at-will agreement, which essentially kind of means like you know they can fire you, right? They they could, um, and they're freaked out by that, and so we have but. So talking through that potential reality, it's one of those things where it is a risk. Sure, the buyer could write you a check for millions of dollars and then turn around the next week or next few months and just decide to fire you, right? Um, right. The, that's a reality, but we have to ask ourselves, is it a rational reality? You know, it's possible, but is it plausible that a buyer is going to try to uh, terminate the very people who control the client relationships and therefore the revenue. Um, and the answer is no. Like we've literally never seen it. The only time that we've ever seen an, a former owner get terminated is for you know typical bad boy provisions. They committed fraud or they did something that they had to terminate them to protect the integrity of, of the firm. What I find interesting is that a lot of sellers don't give um, credit to the same risk that lies on the side of the buyer, right? Like, so sure, the buyer who's really a bad business operator could fire you um, and potentially lose the client revenue, but you could also walk off the job, right? Right. There's no, there's no guarantee. You know, the buyers are often not in your hometown. They haven't come in and disintermediated you and your clients. You're, it's you and your team, just like it has been for years. So what happens if you just decide one day you don't want to come into work anymore? Well, right. same risk to the buyer. And yet sellers never really consider that when they're evaluating the employment agreement. They assume that they bear all the risk of potentially getting terminated. And it's just, it's just not true. And that's something that we get frustrated with legal a lot by putting that kind of stuff in the seller's head that, hey, this is an at-will employment agreement. That means they can fire you. Um, and we're like, yeah, but wouldn't they be really, really stupid to do yeah. that? You know, right. they'd be literally shooting themselves in the foot. They would be totally destroying the value of their business, particularly buyers who are building their business on an inorganic acquisition strategy. How popular do you think their model would be if they made a habit of terminating people they just acquired? So this is largely a myth and uh, you shouldn't be surprised that you're going to have at-will employment agreements. There's going to be non-competes, non-solicits, that's all the normal stuff that go into it. Um, but the buyers also bear a significant amount of risk in in the in the from the opposite perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on to the third one, uh, which is transition prep. So, what is transition prep, Jacqueline? So this is a, this is the third workflow. We've covered due diligence, legal, and now transition. Now the transition. So transition prep, we'd be referring to what are all of the documents that clients will see and sign that custodians require to move the accounts, um, that um, approvals may need to be received from any vendors, landlords, those types of things. That That's all mapped out. So going the first one around the the clients. So oftentimes we'll be looking at what is the current investment management for an independent RA? What is the current investment management agreement outlined for the assignment? Are we allowed to do a negative consent process? 
Is it requiring a positive consent process? Looking at that. And then sometimes, too, buyers may require, rather than doing a positive or even negative consent process, doing a full repaper to their investment management agreement. Um, in, in either case, if we're doing a consent process just to get to a closing, should expect that following the close during that first year, that as you meet with clients on your regular cadence, that you would be going to them to move on to the investment management agreement too. So it's not like you're avoiding that step by right. doing the consent process. Right. But, you see that often. Yeah. And let me ask you this, has, has the transition been assisted by digital signature and thing like that, things like that? Because this used to be a bit much bigger deal than I think yeah. it is today with DocuSigns and all the rest of it. But it's still a pain totally. in the neck to go. Totally. But it's much easier. So that the negative consent process, which used to be kind of thought of as the easy route, it, positive consent, I think, actually goes faster now. Yeah, it can be faster. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, dependent on if your clients are already used to signing things for you electronically. Um you know, but yeah, for the most part versus in there, you know, look back 10 years ago, if offices were being delivered boxes and boxes of paperwork yeah. and big stacks going to clients with all the custodial things, and it can all be electronic now. So it, it really can go quite, quite quickly if, um, if everyone's coordinated. So, um, you know, there's a lot of preparation for press releases that may happen, um, client letters that are going out. Well, yeah, often the the sellers are really concerned with, okay, when and how are we going to communicate this to our clients, mm -hmm. right? And that's a big part of it. And now keep in mind, most buyers, particularly the larger national ones, they have transitions teams. Like this is all they do in the organization. Smaller ones may have people allocated to transition assistance, but they also do other jobs in the organization as well. But either way, when you, the buyers know that this is the most painful thing that you're going to do is the transition. And they, they want to make it as painless as possible, still going to be a pain in the neck, but they're going to allocate resources to you. They'll actually pull custodial resources in as well. Um, but most are going to bring in the marketing team, right? Which are having done a number of transitions before. Um, I find they're, they're basically, they have all the collateral kind of a workflow, a plan of how we're going to announce this to their client, but they, they want to take their process, but put it into your voice as the seller. They understand that you know how to talk to your clients, which ones need to be met with in person versus which ones could do a phone call, um, that sort of thing. But they're going to help you um, put their story about the transition and why it's a good thing for the clients and what can they expect and all the rest, but they're going to try to use your voice. Is that accurate? It is. It is. Oftentimes we'll, we'll see samples come over. These are a few examples of the last five deals, the client communication that went out. You'll see a lot of similarities around the buyer's firm, how that's described, the consent part of it, that will be boilerplate from the compliance folks. But that beginning part needs to be your voice, how you want to deliver that. It, could even be accompanied by a FAQ, um, it, depending on what types of changes may be happening at the closing that we want to spend a bit more time on. Um, but then they're another effective way. They're going to have their narrative of yeah. Yeah. why this is a good thing from the client. That's the ultimate thing that I think most owners want to know is that, hey, when I'm sitting in front of my clients, all of them, 
um, that I'm going to be able to articulate why I'm doing this and, mm-hmm. and why their services aren't going to be degraded. The team is not going the way that they've come to know, love, and trust over the years. And probably one of the most important things, your fees are not going to be arbitrarily raised or increased with no commensurate value being delivered. So th- those things are usually kind of table stakes in the transition. The buyers are actually very sensitive to maintaining as much continuity as possible through the process. And so they're going to have their team come in and work with you, but they, you know, they're, they've got a plan and a, you can do in-person meetings, webinars. We've seen the CEOs of the buyers fly out to the marketplace and put on team events that they can invite the clients to, to kind of do it in mass. There's all sorts of ways you can do it. But the point being is they, they will have a plan, um, but they do want it to be largely in your voice. Um, yeah, Rick. Question. Like, I don't, we didn't review this in prep, but like, Hey, I'm a seller. I'm coming through. You guys are giving me all the information in the teams and you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit. Right. You know, do you, is there, is there a timeline to expect like on a good cadence? And then do you know, like really early on, like, Oh yeah. Like, are there giveaways that like, I know this is, if you don't do this, this is going to happen. Like what is the, what is a good timeline for transition? Realistic. Transition. I would say between the LOI signing and the purchase agreement being signed, I would say if it's more than sixty days, that 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 would be kind of the like the normal range, more than sixty days. So yes. what that requires is starting these transition meetings basically the week after LOI is signed. Yeah, but you would probably know if it was going to go north of sixty days. At dates long down. Here's where it gets bogged down, and I 100 agree. 60 days, if it's gone past 60 days, something is going wrong. I don't mean wrong in the sense that it's like off the rails, but it's not optimal, okay? And so usually what bogs it down, and Jacqueline, you you do this every day, so correct me, I just, I listen to you, so I know where these things bog down. It's in when the buyer doesn't launch transition meetings um, quite soon. So after the LOI, in our opinion, best practice, the buyer and the seller that week or the following week should be on the phone in a team session where we're laying the pathway forward out. Who's going to do what? This is the cadence of the weekly meetings we're going to be having. This is what you can expect in terms of receipt of our due diligence requests when you should expect to see your first draft of the documents. Um, you know, all of that should be laid out of like a, call it a kickoff meeting. And I've seen like, if that doesn't occur, that kickoff meeting is not occurring in that first week or so after the LOI is signed. That's a dead giveaway that this is probably going about longer than 60. Is Alaris present for that or can yeah. they be? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then second, so like scheduling of the kickoff meeting and laying out these transition meetings and, I, and Jacqueline, I think you agree it's, you want the owners involved, but it's best if their operations people are in those those transition meetings, meetings that typically occur weekly. And yes, Alaris is participating in those. Yeah. Um, we're just trying to push and make sure it stays on track. Uh, and then the second place it comes off is when we get a lawyer, typically on the seller side, who tries to rewrite the buyer's documents. You know, that's, that's a, again, we, we talk about this a lot, but finding a lawyer who's good at M&A in wealth management will help solve this. Jacqueline's a pro at knowing what the buyers will typically accept in terms of changes to their agreements. So she can be quite helpful telling the lawyers 
you know, what's going to move versus what's not going to move. But the worst thing is when you get a lawyer who just basically redlines the entire agreement of the buyer and tries to start it all over again. That's a nightmare. Right. That'd be expensive, right. I would imagine. Yeah, it could be expensive and and it, and and frustrating. You know, you're like as as there's so much empathy that happens too because you hear the seller. It is a theoretical possibility about something happening, you know, and and kind of worked up about it. And then when the buyer isn't accepting any changes at face value, that doesn't feel great. So I always recommend if things are coming up in your meetings with your lawyers make a short list, three to five items. What are the top things that are really freaking you out? And just have a call with the buyer, whoever's the right person on the buyer side to talk through it and at least understand, you know, the bigger picture, what's behind it, the philosophy behind it. And and maybe that helps get through it. Maybe it doesn't, you know, but at least understanding that before your lawyer goes off and rewrites the whole agreement that we're at least on the same page of, Okay, are you okay with certain changes like this before we go and spend time trying to do that? Right on. Well, you said finding the right person at the buyer, uh, which is a great segue into I met Michael uh, Belomini of the Carson Group. And I got to tell you, I think he's first rate. He's got great energy. He's got great passion. He is uh, he's just a very, very warm, warm cat. And I had the privilege of spending some time with him last week uh, when we were on the road. That is going to be our guest today, Alan. And uh, you're going to you spend some time with him. And what, yep. what can you tell me? No, well, as you as you said, uh, Carson is one of the national buyers that has been around uh, doing this for quite some time. And uh, they happen to be really, really good at post-LOI workflows. Like when we're, we work with a new buyer, often you don't know what you're going to expect. Even the large ones. Sometimes you're like, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to know what they're doing. And you get into it, and you're like, oh my gosh, they're really bad at this. So, uh, But that's not been our experience with Carson. Um, and so we're going to be asking Michael, like, what, what, what can they expect? Um, they being the seller uh, on the other side of a post LOI workflow with Carson and what, how they see best practices and, you know, what hap what things do they look for to confirm that they have the right partner? Because we're still in due diligence at this point. So it's an awesome interview with Michael. And I think the sellers are really going to enjoy it. Well, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's cut away to the interview with Michael Allen. All right. So we are super excited to have Michael Bellomini, the Vice President of Mergers and Acquisitions for Carson Group. And uh, Michael, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to join us on this topic, which is uh, tip what happens in the post LOI cadence. So should a seller expect, you know, what are the steps in the process? Maybe some stories of weird things that you've seen happen would be fun to talk about, but really just wanted to give them a sense of, you know, this really important phase, which is really the final mile, uh, so to speak, of the race to getting the deal consummated. So right. if you're joining us, before we uh, get started, maybe give us just a few minutes on Carson. I'd love to hear what's new. Maybe share a little bit about the team and what you guys are building. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, first and foremost, thanks for having us on. We're uh, we're really excited to be here. I, I guess I can use the phrase, right? Long time listener. I think I've seen every single episode, so it's fun thank to you. Uh, well, thank you. Hard to look at Rick. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're much more telegenic. Don't tell him that. I'm sure he'll say this. 
So, um, Carson, it, it's been a neat ride for us uh, over the past two years. So, historically, uh, as a firm, we have focused mostly on the affiliation model. So, we have yeah. call it 110 partner offices around uh, the country that choose to dial into the Carson ecosystem. They're using all the things that we provide, but there is no M&A involved. It's not necessarily an ownership stake that we're taking in those offices. Right. Uh, we did start making minority uh, investments in some of those partner offices a few years back. We had about 35 of those around the country. And then really over the past two years, it focused at the start more on succession and continuity, but really lately on those growth uh, capacity constrained offices that are looking for somebody to sort of take control and get them to that next level. So we've done um, about 12 different fully owned transactions over the last few years. And uh, at this point, about 35, 40 minority investments. And that doesn't even count for the sub acquisitions or targets. Yeah. Um, so we've really been focused on this over the last uh, 18.4 months. Well, you know, Carson is certainly a national name brand in wealth management. It's hard for me to think of you guys as somewhat new in the acquisition space. Uh, you're not new per se, but in terms of doing the standard Right. Position where the partners are joining the team, perhaps rolling equity to their shareholders in Carson and you know, all that entails. So, um, but you guys, what, you, what you've been doing uh, is certainly impressive. And we're super excited, Alaris, to have you guys on, on the roster. And so I uh, appreciate all, the, all that you guys do. So, all right, let's, back at you. Let's, let's dive in here. Post LOI. Right. LOI, of course, means letter of intent. Um, it's the final stretch. So, give me a few, maybe just how you guys think about this part of the process in general, you know, how important is it compared to the other components of the process where you're just bringing the firm through the beginning phases, getting to know them, requesting data, all the, all that. Maybe just give me a, a few minutes on your, your thoughts on the post LI process and, and how you see it going down. Yeah. So I think the first thing, um, I, I would want every seller to remember is LOIs, for the most part, are non-binding. Right. Uh, so the real work starts after that LOI. Um, there's the dating that goes along with selecting a firm and learning the value proposition and meeting the people and feeling comfortable about selling your business to them. Uh, the LOI is that first major milestone that that um, hopefully results in somebody being selected and then moving forward through the diligence process. But Post LOI, so many different things can happen that can um, either change the toes or uh, maybe change the timeline involved. So we view that as sort of the first step or the first salvo into the real hard work of learning each other inside and out and going through more of the um, the more extensive due diligence than maybe do through a SAM uh, or just those those preliminary conversations. Yeah. So it's it's massively. Got it. Got it. So, in in having watched you guys go through it, um, I, I think it's interesting from a seller to understand that you know it's not over, right? So, like right. The, as you mentioned, the LOI is non-binding, and that's not to say that either you would never issue an LOI if you weren't dead serious about partnering with this firm based on the thing that you've seen there thus far. But it it is as we shared in the opening part of this, it's the major, the first major milestone in getting the deal done. It's a triggering event, right? It's, it triggers, it, it says to you, hey, we have a serious partner here, potential partner. Let's roll up our sleeves and and really confirm that it is indeed the the awesome um, 
partner that we, we think it is. Yes. Yeah. So, so the point is, you it's a very serious part of the process for you guys. Yeah, I mean, you, you're never right in LOI uh, unless it's in good faith, right? Because you are committing capital uh, to an opportunity and you're essentially taking that off the table that you could reallocate elsewhere. So we would never write an LOI for a firm we didn't want to buy. Um, but you're right. All the, the, the confirmatory due diligence that comes out there is really what makes that deal happen. Got it. Got it. So uh, let me share with me um, after the letter of intent is signed. And as we, we talked in the opening segment, and tell me if you agree or disagree, but there's generally three main workflows that are taking place somewhat simultaneously, official due diligence, legal drafting of documents, and transition preparation. Those are the three broad workflows. Um, what are some of the common things that you've seen surprise sellers? And these presumably would be you know firms that you've worked with and acquired that weren't brought to you by a, a group like Alaris. Hopefully, we've done a better job preparing them for this. But like, what do you see as sometimes things that are surprising um, in the post-sale process to a seller? Yeah, and I would actually that um, that transition uh, workflow. I would actually break out too. There's the transition of assets, which is what I think most advisors think. How do I get my client assets from firm A to firm B? And then there's the integration aspect of selling a business too. So it's, it's, you know, having, uh, leases taken over or moving vendor contracts over all of those things. Um, as far as what can surprise people, I, I think the level of financial due diligence always surprises people every time. Yeah. Um, I, we had a, we had an opportunity to be, uh, closed on earlier this year. They described it as a financial anima. And I know he was partly joking, but <laughs> the idea that, uh, you know, we are going to get under the hood and make sure that, yeah, we feel comfortable with what. Yeah, and say say three. Well, the the where I find them, and this is speaking to our process because we've collected a lot of financial data of the seller leading up to the LOI, where we've modeled yeah. their P and L and presented that to the buyer. The buyer is ingested into their M um, and A model, and they've put forth an offer. And so, you know, they they're like, wow, we've given you a ton of data to get to this point. Now we're now we're going to go into financial due diligence. Yeah. It's like, yes, they're going to now confirm everything that was presented to them. And so, some firms do it internally. Some you do is you know the quality of earnings report, where they engage a third party to verify all the uh, the revenue items and uh, expense items. So it is it is uh, a heightened level of data gathering. And really confirmation, as you said, like you've got, you've got a lease agreement. Well, you've got to read the lease agreement. Um, you've got vendor contracts where you have to evaluate and see the actual contracts um, and verify, you know, the terms and so forth to make sure you're comfortable with them. So, okay, that I would, I would agree. The, um, I, I may add the complexity of the legal, you know, that is somewhat dependent on who they hire. As their attorney, you know, we always recommend they hire an M&A attorney that specializes or has done a lot of work in, in wealth management industry. So we've got some terrific ones too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, 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 you're right. I, I think for us in that regard, um, when you have a pretty simple purchase agreement, um, we find, uh, at least at Carson Group, we don't have a ton of red lines going back and forth on that document. But I think you're right. For most advisors, some of the, the questions that go along with the purchase agreement, like what is the assignation of goodwill and what does that actually mean from a tax treatment 
some of those conversations they have to have with their CPA and their attorney, um, sometimes they're not prepared to, uh, to, to answer for those questions. So there's still things that are going on out uh, you know, it's, that the, still it's the unfun part of the process. So. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you this question. So you're, it's, it's a triggering event that says they're serious. You mentioned we're now going to start spending real capital. And that's something that sellers need to understand. Not that you guys haven't invested time with the seller up to this point. You obviously had spent a lot of time probably on Zoom meetings like this. You've probably flown out with them. So you've spent some money, but now you're getting ready to start spending real money. Right. Allocating internal resources, you know, to them, spending money on legal, spending money on the transition prep and all the rest. Um, how important is the in-person meetings with the various departments between Carson and their team during this due diligence process? Yeah, I, I, it's a prerequisite. I mean, I, I don't think a deal gets done unless we're sitting knee to knee and breaking bread together multiple times. Right. Um, I, I'm a full believer that you cannot really understand somebody's character unless you see them in sort of their natural environment. Um, and that goes both ways. You know, we encourage every single opportunity that's even entertaining in an LOI from Carson to get out to Omaha and spend time with our functional areas. Likewise, uh, if that LOI is getting uh, executed or signed in any way, we're coming out usually a week after. Yeah. That's usually my team to start. Um, but then we're bringing Carson Wealth. We're bringing... Uh, our transitions and integration folks, we're going to be on site multiple times uh, throughout this process. And it's not just the due diligence aspect of it. It's keeping sales momentum. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've talked about this before. Right? We're still dating. We're still learning each other and wanting to make sure that we want to get married. Sure. And um, we can't do that without constant contact and making sure that we're around each other and we feel good about what we're doing well, it's it's ex, it's exposure for your team to get to know them. It's exposure for their team to get to know you. It's a great time, we think. For I mean, we to get an LOI. Honestly, I I, I think I've lost one LOI post um, one one deal post LOI. Usually, it works out. Not that there's not bumps in the road, but uh, they usually end up becoming partners. Um, but it, the dating is still not over, right? That's right. And and I this is a. Um, I know Carson does a great job of this. We try to encourage all the buyers that we work with that, hey, you know, I know you're moving the emphasis on interaction from the corporate development team to the operations transition team, you know, but, you know, you still have to spend a lot of time getting to know your potential partner um, and, and, and court them and vice versa. Like they should be doing the same with you. So the in-person meetings, I think, are critical. Uh, and there's a lot of them. I think that's something, going back to the surprises, is the um, they've already put a lot of time and effort into the process thus far, the seller, and that just goes up a, a whole another no, notch or two, but not just with the founders, the owners, but also with the operations team. Their operations team of the seller is now going to start doing real work, and so that's somewhat a surprise. And we encourage them to mentally prepare them that hey, we understand. In addition to your day job of running our wealth management practice, now we're going to be conducting this um, partnership due diligence, transition, legal work. And sorry, but it's just going to be a lot more time and effort. It will be over, but, you know, prepare yourself. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that code of silence experience, right? In the beginning, it's it's the seller and me uh, or, or my team. But you're right. Once that LOI is signed, compliance is involved and transitions involved. Our integration team is involved and Carson Wealth and all of those people that are going to be working with this new office. And then on the flip side, their operations staff, as you mentioned, 
Uh, we, there's a lot of relationships that have to start being built to ensure that on affiliation day and on closing day, you know, we are we are off at the lawn and not spinning our wheels. Well, as you as you mentioned earlier, um, what did you say? It's like dating after the first fight. That's right. <laughs> yeah, both are pre LOI. Uh, it's it it really is that that fun area. That's the art of yeah. well, What's this going to look like when we get together? And um, everything is sort of on the table, but post LOI, that's where you run into those speed bumps. And uh, as long as both sides are, are, are uh, approaching it from a perspective of partnership, you know we're going to find a way through these things as we, we come across these speed bumps. But there's going to be those speed bumps, and we got to solve for them. And sometimes it's mundane things. Uh, it's something that maybe the seller has already been thinking about. Um, you know, we're not going to allow new service trustee for non-family members. Right. And, uh, Things that never really you thought of. And uh, I knew I needed to do that. I just ever, never found a corporate trustee. Um, but there's always those items. There's, there's no such thing as a post LOI integration transition process where you're not at least identifying some of those things that need to be worked out. Well, I love what you said, as long as you're approaching it with, uh, you know, the partnership mentality, like these are your future partners from both perspectives. And it's not a third party, you know, that we're not, it's like you're, these are our future teammates. And so rational people act like rational people, act like partners, you know, the seller should be thinking about, they're, they're obviously thinking about what's best for them in the transaction, but they also need to be thinking about what's best for our future partner. Um, we're going to be teammates and, and pro probably shareholders. Um, you know, we got to be thinking about their needs and their outcome and the buyer needs to be doing the same thing. So. Well, that's a great segue. What are some of the weird things that you've seen that like post LOI red flags from a seller's perspective, either a behavioral thing or maybe something in their business that you weren't aware of? Like, give me a few war stories. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's always a few. I think we do a pretty good job of looking at the big red flags ahead of time. So, um, you know, making sure that Credit's okay, making sure the CRD and background is okay. Um, those are the items that, that scare you uh, or investment-related uh, disclosures. But I would say uh, there's always the fun, weird criminal disclosures from people's past. <laughs> yeah, everybody was a teenager at one point. Yeah. And um, the fun, weird bad checks or, um, uh, you know, the, the arrests for XYZ substance. Um, those are the yeah. ones that you, you just got to talk through. And it's, I, I, I actually enjoy, uh, perversely, baby, having the conversation with somebody that's been in the business for 35, 40 years, asking about a, uh, you know, a misdemeanor criminal charge from men. college. Uh, like I had one guy, he, he stole a fire hydrant or something and he was in college and he's, he's had, been having to answer for this for years and it's frustrating, but Hey, got to do it. Got to do it. Well, yeah. the thing you're looking for, I think is you're, you want the worst thing to, for me that can happen post LOI is the seller drops some data point on us. And again, typically it's either some kind of compliance issue that wasn't reported. Like for example, I had one that literally told us at the point of LOI that they were under SEC investigation. You know, that's not something that shows up in an ADV right. or that you're actually under investigation now. And they thought that it was fine to withhold that until this point. And we had to tell them, sorry, guys, that's that's a serious indictment of your character to withhold that data from us and, you know, deals off. So it's things that I, they should have told you before that they thought, well, let's just withhold that. That's the thing that we're looking for. 
How often have you walked away from a deal after the LOI? You know, we have not uh, at Carson. So uh, knock on wood, to this point, we have closed every deal we had a signed LOI for. Um, that being said, there are turns that change. Um, usually they're minor. You know, somebody's um, somebody's investment management fees were, uh, were off, or there was a rebate that wasn't accounted for. So they're relatively minor things. Uh, and then sometimes we got to sort of look at structure a little bit, just to reward growth or reward a second generation advisor a little bit more. But so far to this point, um, our track record's pretty good at, at closing every deal. We submitted an LOI and got it. Yeah, well, that that aligns with my experience as well. So it, the good news is for any potential seller that's listening is even though it's a non-binding agreement, you and I, and presumably the majority of the industry have had like a super high a success rate in finalizing the partnership. That, not that things might not be tweaked, as you said, based on things you learn in the due diligence process. But generally, if you have that partnership mentality, you can work through it just about anything. You know, so long as here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, um, and I know you agree, uh, when the cultural fit is there and um, everybody wants to get something done, economics always take care of themselves. Uh, there's never been a situation where we have fallen in love, we want to get married, and um, we're hung up over investment or something like that. You know, yeah. We're going to figure that out. Makes sense. Well, awesome. Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure having you on on this. This is not, no, I wouldn't call this a sexy topic, but it's a very important one. And I uh, really appreciate your insights um, into what how Carson views the post-LOI cadence and how important it is into getting a deal done with a with a great partner. So anything you would like to add? Uh, did I have it? I, I think the only thing I would add is just for a seller, um, understand that that process, that post LOI, as you said, not the sexiest topic, but it's also not a quick, uh, it's not a quick spread. You know, for most firms, that's gonna be two to four months of due diligence and planning. And you should hope that the firm is taking that long. I think when somebody says, great, you got a signed LOI, let's slam me in the door next month, uh, that's cause to be concerned. So, Well, you, you guys actually, um, I would say compared to the industry, have just a slightly longer one, but you're doing more than the typical buyer. Um, and that makes the post-closing transition much easier. You know, it's yeah, just, right. you're going to be spending the time either way. It's just what side of the closing are you doing? Well, Again, I appreciate it, Michael. Thank you very much. Uh, fantastic information. We look forward to many more deals with Carson. Hey, likewise. Thanks so much, Alan. Appreciate having us. And you having us on. And we're back. Can't say it enough. I really like that guy. That was a great interview, Alan. I think he's, I think he's dynamite. Yeah, he is. He's really cool. Easy to easy to talk to. Well, we're up against it, but I think you know, covering you know the the freak out moments, the things that can go bump in the night. I think it's to to really. To bring this home, I have a question really for each of you, and it's more of a best practice action item because all we can do from what I'm gathering, all we can do at Alaris is arm you for the future and set some expectations and give you the tools up front to make what we know is probably going to be bumpy and painful at time as easy as possible. So I'm going to ask you both to think of a best practice from the buyer side and a best practice from the seller side. I will let you take on this challenge um, as you've, pers I'm, I'm assuming Alan's going to take the seller and Jacqueline will take the buyer, but I don't want to force feed you, but See, that's what you get when you assume you make a, a view. And I get it. Jacqueline, so you do, why don't you do the seller side and I'll do the buyers. Okay. All right. 
Uh, I'll go first. Go first. Okay. Um, so on the seller side, I would say be organized before you even start. You know, make sure you have clean financials, good organizational documents of how your LLC is set up and vendor agreements and and just task that to your director of operations today to make sure that that's already, that that's in order. Um, maybe it already is, but great to have that already organized. Um, second, hire an M&A attorney that is familiar with the wealth management space. Most important thing you can do. Um, and then thirdly, I think just be very, um, very curious in that pre-LOI process to really understand all the deal structure that's being talked about and and go back to things when you're not quite clear. Um, there's so many things that interplay between purchase agreements and the equity and employment and just being curious as things are being discussed um, will help you feel feel great in the end and not be surprised by key terms. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, before I jump to the, to the buyers, I would tack on to that is like, we would rather you spend more time in the LOI because it will save time in the post LOI legal. If you get really clear in the LOI and, and by the way, we will help you know what the relevant terms, if you don't know what to ask, we'll prompt you and make sure that we're, we're getting those more difficult topics, um, that we don't want to hear about for the first time in the purchase agreements, you know? get those on the table earlier, vet them out. Buyers, I think, are much more comfortable with the back and forth um, in the LOI phase than they are in the legal. That's a good point. And so be, spend more time in the LOI. Um, okay, uh, so best practices for buyers, uh, I would say is schedule your kickoff meeting within the first week or so um, which would include delivering that due diligence checklist. So like right after the LOI, let's get that due diligence list working and get that first kickoff meeting on the calendar. Cause it's a very happy time for the, for the seller, happy and emotional, right? And they want to see action taking place after that. I've literally seen this, uh, buyer, um, it was a smaller firm, but they, they signed the LOI the, the owner, uh, went on vacation for two weeks. I called them and they said, Hey, tell me about your kickoff meetings. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you haven't talked to the seller. It's been two weeks. <laughs> and that's like a very unnerving thing. So kick it off, right? Deliver the first round of legal documents within the first couple weeks of the signing of the letter of intent. We know this is going to be the most challenging aspect of it, the back and forth between the two legal teams. And we want to get that process started. Um, as quickly as possible. So have your docs locked and loaded. We the worst thing would be to see you like your drafting documents, like in like your you're creating your documents before uh, I mean after the LOI. So we want to have our documents you got to populate it with a seller specific data, but get them in their hands within a few weeks. And then um, let's start as we start the transition calls. Stay on the cadence of transition weekly. Sometimes there there's, there may not be a lot to do uh, during the week because you haven't completed the items from the previous week, but at least you're communicating. Keep in mind as a buyer, this is not fun for the seller or anybody on their team. You've been, you've probably spent a few months with the seller in your corporate development team, which we tend to be the more salesy, you know, dating kind of personalities. 
and we just handed it off to our due diligence and legal and transition team. These people are not salespeople. They're not in tune with the deal, so to speak, right? And so they don't have the same emotional connection. They're just checking boxes. It's not fun. So the buyers need to be communicating with the sellers, even if it's just to say, hello, Rick, we don't have anything really to talk about this week, but we're super excited that you're going to be our new partner. That kind of stuff really means a lot. Sometimes buyers overlook that. They think, oh, it's off on the transition team. We'll let them handle it. No, deal's not closed yet. We've got to stay dating. But you're saying that some of those warm, fuzzy behaviors are not, some are better than others at this? Definitely. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. oh wow. <laughs> We've I've seen buyers that you're just, I'm just befuddled at the lack of communication that they have with their new partner. Ostensibly, their new partner, uh, you know, they act like it's over. It's not over. You've got to stay in touch with them. Let them know that you feel their pain. You know, you're there for them. Um, and, you know, keep that communication going. That's great information from the uh, from the both of you. Thank you very, very much. Now it's that time again. We're, <clears throat> show's coming to a, <clears throat> a great episode coming to a close, but we cannot walk away without doing that episode of our mailbag. So if you have your questions, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. That's boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. We will take your question live. Hopefully we'll read it on the air in a future episode. We've got two today. Uh, Leonard from Cleveland writes, and hi, Alan and Jacqueline. I feel like I'm pretty down the road on a potential sale of my practice. I keep getting people telling me they can get a higher offer for me, which admittedly I'm not taking too seriously, but for my own peace of mind, is it too late for me to back out of a deal? And can a buyer back out of a deal at any point too? Leonard. Hmm. Well, there's a lot in that question. Um, one, you know, when people tell you they I'll give you an example. We had a we had a buyer, excuse me, a seller that came to the process. They had some structural issues wrong with their business. When I say wrong, it was compliance issues, client concentration. You know, a few things that we know buyers would ding them on their valuation for. And and that's actually what ended up happening. But during the process, they kept getting peppered with people, say, you know, sales out advisors or other people that were telling them, oh, that offer is too low. We can get you a better offer. And we had to constantly tell them like, look, we understand what multiples are in the industry. We, we do a lot of transactions. Um, but when someone just comes in and off the cuff, asks you what your revenue is or your EBITDA is, and just quotes a multiple, just throw it out the window because there are so many things that inform the the general to the specific. You know, like you can have two businesses that are the same size, same financial data, but have very different data sets of facts that make the one firm more appealing than another. So um, I would start with that. Like you keep giving people telling you you get a higher offer from me. Maybe, but we we had to know a whole lot more about your business before I could tell you that. Okay, second part of the question. The legal part, the backing out of the deal. Yeah, that's where I was going. So when can you back out of a deal? Well, um, up until signing a definitive agreements, technically. like So even when you sign a, a letter of intent, most are non-binding, okay? So either party can walk away for any reason after the signing of letter of intent, typically. Even the ones though that have a binding letter of intent usually have a, you know, they're fine stuff again, due diligence that they're not comfortable with, which is a highly subjective measure of, you know, comfortability. If they can, they can put it this way, even if it's a binding LOI, 
they could find something that they can walk away from the deal from. And I think so could you as the seller. So really, I would say, Jacqueline, you can back away from a deal up until the point where you've signed the definitive agreements, which right. again, as I said, both parties are bound. And then from there to the close, there's always like walkaways if something really terrible happened at the buyer level that, you know, like kind of like extreme diligence situations that would that would be there too. That's not for not for price though, at that right. point. But yeah, I would say one one quick point is that don't sign an LOI even though it's non-binding, unless you're like ninety five percent or better certain that this is what you want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, don't waste people's time um, because you know the letter of intent is non-binding. Only sign a lot if you're if you're if you're saying I'm going through with this, <laughs> unless you know I find something really bizarre or odd that I'm not comfortable with, which. I can point to one LOI, one transaction in my entire career that after the LOI was signed didn't end up transacting. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, we had two in the mailbag. This last question had two or three parts to it. So we're going to have to punt on Confused in Tampa until our next episode. And we will put him at the front of the batting order for the next mailbag in the night. A big shout out and a thank you to Michael Belomini of the Carson Group, one of our favorite, favorite partners uh, that we love working with. Until next time, on behalf of Alan Darby and the lovely Jacqueline Martinez, I am Rick Music, and this has been your Buyer's Boardroom.